This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today, we're going to be talking about choice. And this comes because in the last couple of weeks, I've had several sessions with couples that I'm working with where this word comes up, choice. In all the circumstances where it's come up, it's the betrayed partner talking about the addiction or talking about the addicted partner's behavior. And they will say, well, you chose to do that. Now, in most of these situations, I'm further along, they're further along in this whole process. And so the addict may say, yeah, I did choose that. And to a degree, that's accurate, that's correct. However, I've brought up and said, like, I'm, I'm getting a little bit hung up here on the word choice. And it's my bias, it's my issue that's coming up. You guys are not having this issue. But I think if we're going to start going a little bit deeper and excavating a little bit more, I think we need to, to look at that. Now, we all make choices every single day. Some are big, some are small. One of the articles I was reading said that the brain actually makes three billion decisions a second. Now, if we didn't have the opportunity, if our brain wasn't capable of streamlining things and making some of these decisions automatic, life would be much more challenging. However, also the brain can streamline things that should not be streamlined and that we should take the time to think through, to consult people in order to make an effective decision. Some of our decisions that we have to make are maybe related to time and money. Others are related to the life roles that we prioritize in our life. There can be a billion things that we could do, but we have to make the choice with our limited time and in our circumstances. So when we start talking about decisions and we start talking about choices, are the words used interchangeably? Well, I, I think often the words are used interchangeably. So then the question, is choosing the same as deciding? Well, maybe we're getting hung up on semantics, but maybe when we look a little bit closer, there's a difference. A lot of people who are writing about choice and decisions, they do make a distinction between choice and decision. And what a lot of them will say is that choice connects to the place of desired intention or our values or our beliefs. And decision connects more to the place of behavior or performance or the consequences. So you could say that choices are connected to reasons, the reasons why we choose something, and decisions are connected to the causes. But again, still the question, are we getting hung up on semantics? Is it really that important to distinguish between the two? Well, if we look at dictionary.com, the two definitions of decision and choice do vary. There's two different definitions of the two words. So the definition of decision is the act of or need for making up one's mind. And the definition of choice is the right power or opportunity to choose. So I think when we start asking ourselves this question, what's the difference between choosing and deciding? 
we start to run into some of the problems. Or at least I think we do, but I had that bias come up multiple times with couples that I was meeting with recently. Also, when you dive in deeper, the origins of the two words are also interesting. So decision is very similar to the word incision, and it comes from the Latin root to cut. So in order to make a decision, we are cutting something else away, right? I'm deciding to do this, and I'm also deciding not to do this. I'm cutting something away in order to pare down and make my final choice, or my final decision, I should say. Whereas the origin of the word choose is to perceive. So if we take the origins and the definitions from dictionary.com, we do gain some clarity about what the difference is, although it may seem like a slight line or it may seem like a very fuzzy line that marks the difference between the two. And maybe you still just want to use them interchangeably. So both choice and decision is difficult because it represents sacrifice. When we're choosing or deciding something, it inherently means we're giving up something else, something we might have a different perspective on tomorrow or next week, or something we might want tomorrow or next year. And that's not going to be available to us if I don't make that choice today. Now we do know that the brain has a finite amount of energy for decision-making. President Obama knew this when he said, quote, I'm trying to pare down decisions. I don't want to make decisions about what I'm eating or wearing because I have too many other decisions to make. This was his quote when he was asked why he only wore blue suits or gray suits. And then we all know what happens when he decided to wear a tan suit and it was scandalous. But Obama isn't the only leader who follows this logic. Facebook co-founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg, regardless of what you think of him, and the late Apple co-founder and CEO Steve Jobs both wore the same outfits every day as well. And it's not because these three men had poor fashion sense. It's because they understood that making decisions causes mental fatigue. This is why if we don't have a weekly plan for what we're eating for dinner, typically by the end of the day, we've made enough decisions that this decision or this choice as to what we're going to have for dinner usually isn't made very effectively. Now, there was an interesting example that came from a 2010 study by Jonathan, again, I don't pronounce these names very well, Jonathan LeVay and Shay Danziger. According to their research, Israeli parole boards granted parole to around 70% of prisoners who appeared before them early in the morning, but they granted parole less than 10% to the prisoners who appeared late in the day. Well, that doesn't take a lot of thinking through to decide that it's better for me to go before the parole board in the morning rather than in the evening when the people making these decisions are fatigued. The more choices that we make throughout the day, the harder each one becomes for our brain and eventually our brain just starts to look for shortcuts. John Tierney wrote of this study for the New York Times. He said, as you make more decisions throughout the day, your reserve of willpower eventually becomes depleted. And as you become more fatigued, you'll start to either make decisions impulsively instead of carefully thinking through consequences or wind up doing nothing 
due to a lack of energy to weigh the options. In the case of the parole board, it was easier to stick with the status quo and keep prisoners incarcerated instead of chancing release and recidivism. In short, the more decisions, whether they're simple or complex, that one is subjected to, the less mental energy and willpower that we have left at the end of the day. Now this finding has widespread implications. Take for instance, the connection between decision fatigue and impulse eating, or decision fatigue and any type of addiction. Tierney went on to write about people trapped in poverty. He quoted economist Dan Spears, who urges sympathy for someone who makes decisions all day on a tight budget. In one study, Spears found that when the poor and the rich go shopping, the poor are much more likely to eat during the shopping trip. Now, this might seem like confirmation of their weak character, which we like to think about poor people, because they could presumably save money and improve their nutrition by eating meals at home instead of buying ready-to-eat food or snacks or processed food. But if you think about how a trip to the supermarket can induce decision fatigue in the poor more so than in the rich, because every purchase requires more mental trade-offs. There's more keeping track of the tally, the overall cost of this shopping trip, in the head than there is for people who have a little bit more wiggle room in their budget. So that by the time they're reaching the cash register or the checkout, they'll, they're going to have less willpower left to resist all of those fun things that are reserved for us as we're waiting in line to check out. We're not gonna have decisions left to resist the Snickers or the Skittles. And that's why oftentimes these stores put them there because they know that shoppers who have been, who are shopping in the evening or shoppers who may be experiencing decision fatigue are more likely to make impulse purchases. Now, the other thing that we know about trauma and making decisions or making choices, we know that initial reactions to trauma often include exhaustion, confusion, sadness, anxiety, agitation, numbness, dissociation, physical arousal, and a flat affect. Most responses to trauma are normal in that they affect most of the trauma survivors and they're socially acceptable. Maybe they're psychologically effective, they're self-limited. Indicators though of more response, more severe responses to PTSD include continuous distress without periods of relative calm or rest, severe dissociation symptoms, and intense intrusive recollections that continue despite a return to safety. Delayed responses to trauma can include persistent fatigue, sleep disorders, nightmares, fear of recurrence, anxiety, flashbacks, depression, and avoidance of emotions, sensations, or activities that are associated with the trauma, even remotely. So what we know about trauma is that trauma can affect one's beliefs about the future. So for example, they, they may have a loss of hope. They may have limited expectations about their life, or that they may have a fear that life will end abruptly or early, or an anticipation that normal life events won't occur, whether that's 
access to education, graduation, ability to have a healthy relationship or good opportunities for work. All of those things can come about because of trauma. So for example, let's say that you always considered your driving time as your time and your car is the safe place where you spend that time. You enjoy listening to music or you love to put on your favorite podcast while you are in your car and then someone hits you from behind. Now, almost immediately, the accident affects how you start to perceive the world. And from that moment onward, usually for months following a crash, you're gonna feel unsafe in any car. You might become hypervigilant about other drivers and perceive that other cars are drifting into your lane or failing to stop at a safe distance behind you. For a time, our perception, if we've been in a car accident, which I have, our perception of safety is eroded because all of a sudden we are way more tuned in to all of these other drivers that we don't know and we probably don't trust who are also on the road with us. We might excessively glance into the rearview mirror to make sure that people are stopping, especially if we've been rear-ended. And that happens until the belief is restored or reworked that I'm safe in my car, that my car is my time and I can enjoy the time in my car doing what I enjoy doing. But some individuals never return to their previous belief systems after trauma, nor do they find a way to rework them. And then that leads to a view of the world and themselves in the world that it's unsafe. They may not be able to return to these organizing beliefs that support their perception of safety. And so they're moving forward. Maybe, you know, maybe it's not the car accident, but if people have experienced trauma and it's chronic or consistent or complex, then they may not be able to restore or rework those beliefs about themselves and themselves in their world. We've known for some time that experiencing trauma has significant implications for mental health. Particularly, we've known this since the early 1970s after observing and studying the effects of war on American servicemen in Vietnam. More recently, research has shown that experiencing trauma early in childhood has a significant impact on the development of the brain and the way it works. So we know that trauma early in childhood can result from a range of things like living in a home where domestic violence is present or being raised in situations where the parents' needs, maybe their drug addicts or alcoholics, those parental needs influence their ability to provide for the child's needs. Maybe a mom is depressed. Maybe there's an affair happening in the marriage and both parents are focused elsewhere instead of on the kids in the house and what their needs are. Complex trauma can come in the form of neglect which is often much harder to suss out. Not responding to a baby or not having the skills to do so, for instance, or the means to do so, usually will have an outcome where the baby's development needs may not be adequately met. Complex trauma can also come in the form of abuse. So maybe, for example, when a baby who's crying to try to convey its needs or the distress that it's feeling, if you've got a colicky baby, Maybe that baby is shaken instead of given food or comfort. 
And this can result in more crying and a cycle of crying where abuse may often follow. The repeated experience of trauma in development has been termed complex trauma. And there's a lot being written about complex trauma. We know that people react to threat or danger with a system that's comprised of biological thoughts and behavioral responses. So again, if we go back to those definitions of decisions and choices, we had reasons or thoughts and behavior or consequences. So here we have this reaction to threat or a danger and a biological system that is composed of thoughts and behaviors when threat or danger is detected. The biological response usually involves a cascade of interdependent neurochemical changes in different parts of the brain and the body. And then these changes are going to influence our thinking and our behavior or our choices and our decisions. Now, normally, like we've talked about, following the perception of threat or danger. And let me just clarify that emotional threat or emotional danger does not really register differently in the body or in the brain, the nervous system or the brain, than physical threat or danger does. So normally following this perception of threat or danger, the body's neurochemistry returns back to normal. But in post-traumatic stress disorder or complex PTSD, the neurochemical responses outlive the original threat and inhibit our system's ability to return to normal. So in individuals with complex trauma, research suggests that repeated exposure to traumatic events early in development not only inhibits the neural system's ability to return to normal, but it changes the system to appear like one that is always anticipating or responding to trauma. People who have experienced complex trauma may display symptoms including poor concentration, poor attention, poor decision-making, and judgment. They may also appear highly reactive and they may respond to a threat even if it's not present. Their behavior may be aggressive in response or they may get the heck out of there in flight or they may simply freeze. So in this way, complex trauma translates into a range of social, emotional behavior and interpersonal difficulties that can be lifelong. The associated personal, social, economic costs of this can also be high. I remember when I was in college, I was dating a guy and one of our first dates, it wasn't the first date, but it was maybe our second or third date. We went to a park and he had a soccer ball in the back of his car and we were just kind of like kicking the ball about and kind of passing it back and forth, whatever, as we were talking and kind of asking each other questions, getting to know each other. And the ball hit the wrong place on his foot and it kind of sent it like flying in the wrong direction. And he made a sudden movement to kind of like try to catch that ball so that it didn't hit me or that it didn't get lost. And I immediately like ducked and moved. And I remember like not thinking that that was all that revelatory, but I remember him catching the ball and then kind of stopping and saying like, did you think I was going to hit you? And I was like, no, no, I just wanted to get out of the way. Right. But then later that night we were driving in his car and he asked me, he was like, he circled back to that again and asked like, what was that about? Cause it looked like you anticipated being hit. And he said, has that happened to you before? 
And again, this is our second or third date. I'm like, dude, I'm not talking to you about any of this. And so I just kind of minimized it, just kind of pushed it down, made it look like, oh no, not at all, not me. But I think those default settings are in me. Like if if somebody moves quickly and I see them in my peripheral vision and I'm not quite sure what's happening, I'm more likely to go into a defensive mode. Now it's clear, or I think it's clear with childhood trauma, that the best time to do something about a problem is before it begins. That's probably true of more than just childhood trauma. And there have been some effective prevention programs that have been developed and provided to parents who are known to be at increased risk of not being able to provide the best care for their children. Oftentimes these programs teach parents skills in parenting or managing their own emotions and providing a safe home environment. Now I I do want to say that traumatic stress reactions are normal reactions to abnormal circumstances. But what I'm talking about is traumatic stress reactions to normal circumstances. They're not abnormal, they're normal. And we still have that ability to respond as though there's a danger or there's a threat. In a research article from the Pacific Standard in December of 2017, They said that new research shows that those who suffered significant trauma at a young age are unable to correctly consider risk as adults. So what they found in this case, they were looking at people who were incarcerated. It was a study out of the University of Wisconsin, Madison. And the psychology professor, Seth Pollock, worked with over 50 people around the age of 20 and found that those who had experienced extreme stress as kids were hampered in their ability to make good decisions as adults. So again, simply put, childhood trauma due to circumstances like neglect or exposure to violence or whatever the trauma is, created young adults fundamentally unable to correctly consider risk and make healthy life decisions. They also found that no threat of punishment was likely to be effective in changing this deficit. So in cities where there were fears of juvenile violence, Pollock's research suggests that demands for stiffer sentences on youthful offenders are likely to be counterproductive because that threat of being sentenced or that threat of incarceration just doesn't really make a difference for these youth. Now, the study's participants were already known to Pollock, and he had worked with them as eight-year-olds when he measured their stress levels as part of a study on the effects of stress hormones on children's development. The kids from Madison and its surrounding areas ranged from middle-class children who had experienced no trauma to kids who had dealt with extreme circumstances like abuse or a parent that was killed by gunfire. They also found that extreme poverty tends to be associated with these traumatizing environments. Economic uncertainty is going to put parents under stress, which will trickle down to their children. Food and housing insecurity can also exacerbate all of these stresses. So in revisiting the group when they were about 20, Pollock enlisted those who as children were at the ends of the trauma spectrum, either experiencing very little stress or a lot of stress or trauma. And the study had the now adult-aged participants engage in tasks such as gambling, simulations, that were designed to assess their response to risk-taking or reward or punishment. He said we could give them clues as to outcomes such as when you see the shape, 
you're at risk of losing $5. And then Pollock scanned the participants' brain activity while they completed the activities. He found that the people who did not have stressful childhoods tended to pay attention to the clues and they gambled wisely, whereas those who had suffered severe trauma didn't. They would, for instance, choose the shape that they had been warned against and make the mistake again and again. They also took a great deal of time agonizing over decisions. And when they lost, they became markedly upset. They weren't able to predict loss based on the instructions given. The brain scans of this group showed less than usual brain activity during the period of decision-making and more than usual activity during the aftermath. Pollock said, it makes sense. If you didn't pay attention to the cues indicating that you're about to lose, you would be more surprised and upset when you do. The study also explored the subject's behavior in real life, not just in this simulated gambling exercise. They filled out a simple questionnaire about their propensity to drive without a seatbelt, avoid the doctor when they were ill, and other risky behaviors. And the results actually mirrored the results of the games. The participants who made poor gambling decisions also tended to make poor life decisions. And Pollock stressed that the findings aren't related to intelligence or IQ. He said it's more like a learning disability. That people were ignoring the signs that most people were taking as a warning. But that information for those with high trauma, that information just wasn't getting processed. He said most of the participants who had experienced trauma as children were now facing problems like criminal records, joblessness, or obesity. But a few had succeeded. He did say that. He said, we even found one person who was studying at an Ivy League university. However, the research showed that regardless of current circumstances and stress levels, it was the experience of childhood trauma that determined how well the participants assessed risk. Pollock stated that although it's well documented that children who experience high stress are at risk for behavioral problems, the neurobiological process that contributes to this are actually poorly understood. Pollock's experiment addressed this by suggesting that altered brain activation leads to poor judgment in decision-making and that something about the stress of early childhood is changing the brain systems that allow us to attend to information that might signal potential risk or loss. Dr. Patrick Carnes also talks about some of this when he talks about the making of an addict. He says, addiction starts with the genetics of your family. It's no accident that addiction runs in families and as we learn about our genomic structure, it's clear that addicts tend to have some differences from the general population. He said that genomic evidence is starting to appear that addicts have a DNA sequence which comes from nomadic peoples. And there seems to be in their genes more need for novelty. These early findings, he says, are intriguing given the proven role of a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate. It's this groove at the top of your brain that's the gear shifter and it allows us to multitask in all of the addictions, substance or behavioral. There's a body of evidence which shows that novelty seeking is core to the addiction. He adds that while we do not have the full genomic profile yet of addiction, we know some people are much more vulnerable than others to addiction. And this brings us to the question, when do the factors that make an addiction start? Well, the answer actually is immediately after birth. 
The first two years of life are critical because that's when the basis of attachment occur. And during this time, the parent will gaze at the child. It's not really just about gauging whether the child's hungry or entertaining the child or changing diapers. Optimally, the parent and the child simply look at each other. Dr. Carnes writes, the gaze of the parent is the beginning of intimacy. Busy parents who are hard pressed for time cannot provide this core ability of establishing a bond. Or it's more difficult, maybe not cannot, but it's more difficult to, to provide this ability of establishing a bond. And since the brain is always seeking something to do, the children typically busy themselves or they can just become an observer to a myriad of other things to occupy their time. He says one definition of addiction is that it is a failure to bond. The inability to establish secure attachment has been repeatedly demonstrated as a key factor in addictive disorders. If you do not trust people, you may find that alcohol, sex, food, and excitement do what they promise, causing you to feel better, at least for the moment. Plus, if you grew up in a family in which adults had excessive behavior, the modeling confirms that this is how to do life. The bottom line is addiction can start as an intimacy problem. He continues, a child learns from a parent how to access, utilize, and learn from feelings. Essentially, the child borrows the frontal lobe of the parent. When something difficult happens, the parent sets limits, helps develop decision-making skills, and soothes upset feelings. Our feelings are critical to our ability to develop a sense of self or what is sometimes called a self-concept. The definition of self is much more than an idea. How to deal with feelings is one of the most essential life skills. And families where feelings were discouraged or not tolerated create kids unable to access their feelings. The children then have difficulty being with themselves and they typically seek distraction. He writes, the greatest escalator of all is the feeling of fear. Fear changes the brain. Fear alters the very structure of the brain. Chemicals that keep the brain in a high arousal are generated in excess, and the chemicals that soothe and help in decision-making actually decline. If you take that fear away, the child will actually feel like something's missing. And if prolonged enough, that child grows up to be an adult who is in constant crisis, lives on the edge, can place him or herself at risk, and uses addictive behavior to manage stress. Now, addiction is not always based in childhood problems. For example, going back to our Vietnam vets, we had Vietnam vets who went to war with no history of addiction or abuse in their families, but they came back heroin addicts, sex addicts, and risk junkies. War, natural disaster, or government collapse are examples of catastrophic stress that has been shown to precipitate addictive behavior in all forms. The other problem is exposure. Early excessive behavior is a problem, especially in the ages from 12 to 16. Adolescent drinking episodes dramatically raise the adult onset for alcoholism, although not all adolescents are doomed for alcoholism. Smoking as an adolescent is a critical precursor for nicotine addiction. The part that is deceptive for kids is that nicotine remains in the brain of an adolescent for 30 days. So what they see as occasional use is the beginning of a problem. Kids who gamble on the internet are much more likely to have an adult money problem. 
and kids who are sexually abused or experience early sex are much more likely as adults to have problems with sexually compulsive behavior or sexually aversive behavior or both. Now, if we take what Pollock's research showed us or what Dr. Carnes's research has shown us, how we often approach adolescent teens who are caught up in problems, who are creating problems, we would understand that typically there's some stress or trauma in their background and that building more jails or ramping up punishments for juvenile offenders will do little to defer future crime. In fact, research shows that the majority of youth involved in the criminal justice system, up to 90% of youth, have experienced trauma. And on these kids and young adults, Pollock's research shows that the threat of inflicting further punishment is not going to have its desired effect. He says it's like disciplining a child with something that's not meaningful to them, but we still hold them responsible for making the same mistake. However, if we can understand the origin of some of these problems that we encounter, then we can start to address a problem before it actually becomes a problem. We can create policy or community programs that limit exposure to childhood trauma. We may create social safety nets that can shield children from stress, such as affordable housing or nutrition assistance and health insurance. Now, while we do know that these programs can seem costly, the expenses of providing these programs actually are dwarfed by the social costs of dealing with adults who enter society and the workforce unable to attain education, hold down jobs, and maintain families and relationships. So there's powerful evidence that the problems of early life lead to other problems that just don't go away because we punish them. Now Pollock did say that there's one silver lining. Because his research focuses on the developing brain which transcends ideology or economic class or racial or ethnic groupings and other potentially politically charged elements, Pollock holds out hope that those across the political spectrum will pay attention to this research. He said there's something about showing a biological effect in children that tends to make these policy issues bipartisan or nonpartisan. Now, getting back to some of the sessions that I had with couples over the last three or four weeks and my reaction to the word choice. Like I said, it wasn't necessarily the addicted partner who was taking issue with the word choice, it was me who was taking issue with the word choice. And if we go back to the dictionary.com definition of choice, it's the right or power or opportunity to choose. And I think that's what a lot of us think about when we think about choices or making a choice. But we don't take into effect the idea that we may not all have the same opportunity to choose. We may not all feel like we have a right to choose or that we have the power to choose. We may have grown up with the belief that if I choose, bad things will happen. And so it's easier to go with the flow and to not raise an issue. Or maybe it's easier to get upset about a choice that's presented to me and still make no choice. Again, when we dive into the deeper origin of the word choice, comes from the word to perceive or the origin to perceive. Well, what we found from some of the research is that kids who have experienced childhood trauma 
simply cannot perceive the risk or process the risk the same as kids who did not experience childhood trauma or who experienced limited childhood trauma and had an environment that responded in a positive way so that the beliefs could be reworked and return to more of a natural state. So just a very simple example, and I'm not saying this has anything to do with my trauma, but a couple weeks ago, my husband and I were at a park. It's a park that we go to often because it's close by our house and they have Fox there, which I don't think until I moved to this house three and a half years ago, I had never actually seen a Fox up live and in person. So there's Fox that live there. I mean, they're kind of fenced off, their areas fenced off from the walkers or the, you know, a lot of dogs are there as well. So the dog walkers, but it's kind of fascinating to just watch foxes move about and to see them. I had never seen that before. So it's a place that we often walk. And so we had gone walking on this one day and it was kind of a, we had had some rain. And so it was kind of a cooler, uh, kind of a damp summer day. And we were on this walk and we're just kind of talking and walking and I see a snake coming along, slithering along, and it's moving right between my husband's two feet. And I panicked and I like grabbed him and, you know, I do have fingernails. So I kind of scratched him. I grabbed him. I scratched him. I was just, I couldn't even really speak. And then when I did have the ability to speak, according to him, I just said some expletives. And he was just like, why are you grabbing me? Why you scratched me? What are you doing? Right? He wasn't that upset. He was kind of upset. And he was like, why did you do that? And I was, then I could get out the word like snake. And he still hadn't seen it. And it had moved right between his two legs. And he saw it and was like, oh, that's just a garden snake. Like, that's not scary. And I was like, well, it was scary to me. And he said, like, I had no idea that you were scared of snakes, you know? And I said, well, as an adult, I'm not really in situations where I see snakes a lot. And so you probably wouldn't have seen that reaction in me until today. And he was just like, well, why couldn't you just say snake? Why did you have to like grab me? And, and like, you know, like why, like, why did it have to go that way? And I was like, well, I couldn't really, like, it's not like I could choose. Like, I, it's not like I chose to like grab you and kind of scratch you in the process and not be able to say the word snake. Like I'm understanding that saying the word like, hey, there's a snake. Sure, that would have been much better. But like, it's not like I really could choose. I didn't choose my response. So we'd had that conversation. The next day, we're walking, same area. And like I said, there's a lot of people who take their dogs walking there too. And most of them clean up after their dogs, but not all of them do. And so we were walking and my husband saw that, you know, there was some dog poo laying out and that I could have stepped in it. Now, I also saw the dog poo, but he said to me like, hey, there's dog poo, watch out. And I clearly averted stepping in the dog poo and getting my shoe dirty. And he said, see how I did that? See how I did that? I just said, hey, look, there's some dog poop. Don't step in that. It's like, you could have done the same thing. So it came up again. And I said, well, first of all, I don't think that you're afraid of dog poo. And I'm not really afraid of dog poo. The dog poo wasn't moving. It was just laying there. I said, so I, I think it's different. Like, yes, yesterday, if I had seen dog poo, I probably would have said, dog poo, watch out. I wouldn't have grabbed you and been afraid. And so we just kind of talked about this, kind of laughed about it. And he was, you know, feeling proud of himself for not having an extreme response to this dog poo on the trail. And 
it got me thinking because I had already had some of these sessions with some clients where this idea of choice or this wording of choice came up, like you chose to do these things. And so I think for me, it was, again, a very small, small comparison to what I was feeling in those sessions when I would hear a partner say, well, you chose to do these things. And the other one would say, yes, I did. Because again, in my mind, this idea of free choice or the privilege to make a choice or the belief that we have a right to make a choice isn't always there for my clients. It's not really even there for most addicts. It's not there for people who experience complex PTSD as children. But we use that word so much and it's thrown around so often without us really stopping to think about the circumstances that lead to good choices and healthy life choices and what we might call bad choices or dysfunctional life choices. Even though they may be dysfunctional life choices, they're a way of coping and they make sense. So it's just something that I wanted to talk about. And I thought, hey, I have a podcast. Why not talk about it on the podcast? So that we maybe can bring some awareness. I don't know that the state of our political system right now is one that Pollock showing his biological research actually makes an issue nonpartisan or bipartisan. I just don't know that we're there yet. And so if our policymakers aren't in that place, maybe we as individuals, and maybe we in our family, or we in our couples, or we in our friendships, or just circumstances where we're out and about with other people coming across each other's paths, maybe we can be a little bit more understanding. Maybe we can be less judgmental. Maybe we can be more courteous and more patient with the people that we interact with or cross paths with. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.